0: Well, good morning. Welcome, I guess you could say, to Christmas at uh, Crosspoint. Uh, Doesn't this look great up here? Our team did a marvelous job of creating all this, and thank you uh, for all their hard work. I don't know if you have uh, been following uh, the news of Mr. and Mrs. Salahi. They are the uh, couple that uh, two or three weeks ago decided they would sort of crash a State Department dinner. Um, a lot of uh, controversy about that. And a lot of pressure now on the Secret Service trying to explain how this couple managed to get into this invitation-only event and get their pictures taken with Vice President Biden and with President Obama. Uh, maybe you saw their interview on the Today Show earlier this week, uh, and they are insisting, by the way, that they received an invitation, that they were invited to this event. Other people are saying they weren't, and I'm sure that uh, battle will kind of rage on for some time. Were they invited? Or weren't they invited? If you're a a college football fan, tonight at 8 o'clock we'll learn what uh, teams have been invited to participate in bowl games. And for some of them, that'll be a great thing because it's great to be included and invited and it extends their season. And for others, uh, it's not such a good thing because they have been left out and their season comes to an end. You know, for all of us, it doesn't feel good not to be invited, does it? It's probably happened to all of us at some time. You know, you find out somebody is having a party and you discover you weren't invited. And immediately, I know, the questions all go running through your mind. What's wrong with me? Now, why didn't I get invited? Don't they like me? Am I bad at parties? It just doesn't feel good not to be invited. So I want you to know this morning that 2,000 years ago, God sent a very personal invitation It was an invitation to follow Him, to be His friend, to worship Him. This invitation came in the form of a baby born in a manger. Jesus came to invite people to a relationship with God. And here's the best part. No one, absolutely no one, was left off the invitation list. Everyone, every one of us has been invited into this relationship with God. That's the message and the story of this Christmas season. And so for the next few weeks, I want to tell you, or maybe in a lot of our cases, remind us of the story of that invitation and the incredible difference it can make in our lives. Have you ever received a letter from the IRS? Now, probably when you go to the mailbox and you see there is a letter from the IRS, your first thought is not, oh, let's rejoice. Let's gather the family together and see what good news is contained in this letter. Probably not. Probably your first thought is, oh no, what did I do wrong? What's the bad news? When you were growing up, maybe your dad said to you one day, son, daughter, we need to have a talk. And what was your first thought? Oh, no, what did I do wrong? Or how did he find out what I did wrong? Right? Or or maybe you had this experience. You were sitting in school and the principal's voice comes over the loudspeaker and someone in the room is called to the office. And what was the audible response of everyone in the class? Yeah, exactly. Because our first thought was, "Uh uh-oh, they're in trouble. Or maybe, you know, for me, sometimes I come back from lunch and occasionally there is a message on my desk. And I'll be really honest, sometimes my first thought is, oh, no, you know, what are they upset about? What did we do wrong before I return? that, well, What is that? Were we raised that way? That all of us seem to have this natural inclination that when there is a message from someone in authority over us, we just assume it's bad news? All of the wrong things that we've done just start running through our minds? Here's an interesting thing. An odd thing, maybe. Somewhere along the way, we have attached the same reaction to God. That if I were to receive an envelope from God and His name was on the return address, I I would open that with fear and trembling there is a part of me that would assume it's some kind of bad news and all of the stuff in life, all of my mistakes, everything that I've ever done wrong, would start running through my mind. You see, immediately, even if you're not a Christian, even if you think, I'm not really even a religious person. In fact, I'm not even sure there is such a thing as God. Immediately, for all of us, if we knew we had to go one-on-one with God, there would be this sense of uneasiness, a sense of fear. Because even if you're not really sure about God, I think everyone, there is this thing inside of us that knows if God is holy, I'm not. If God is righteous, I'm not. If God is consistent, I know I am inconsistent. And whatever God is, I know I am not. And so there is this Fear that pervades us. But what if that envelope was not bad news? What if that envelope contained a very important invitation? You see, that's the message of the Christmas story. God sent us an invitation. And that invitation ought to change that kind of thinking. That kind of That invitation ought to drive away that kind of unhealthy, don't open the envelope, run the other direction kind of fear that we often have about God. But here's another interesting thing. We all know the story of Christmas. In fact, a lot of us have been in the story. I mean, how many of you in your lifetime, somewhere along the way, you were in a Christmas play about the story of Jesus' birth? Now look at all those holy people. Any of you ever play the part of a sheep? Look, we actually have some people here that played the part of a sheep. Or maybe you were a shepherd or a wise man. Maybe you had that starring role of Mary and Joseph. Or maybe you played some character that's not really even in the story that somebody made up just so they could get all the kids up on the stage at the same time. We know the story. But if we would ever allow that story that we know so well, if we would ever really grasp it, if we would ever really let that story get from here to here, it has the potential to drive away that unhealthy, don't open the envelope, run the other direction kind of fear. And so to the best of my ability today, I want to point you to some words and some phrases. They are probably words and phrases that you've read a thousand times. Maybe you've memorized them. You see them lived out or depicted in your neighbor's front yard maybe as you drive by every evening. But I want to look at these words and these phrases in this story. And over the course of the next three weeks, my hope is that the truth of this story will somehow in our lives move from here to here. And it will drive out of our lives that unhealthy don't open the envelope, run the other direction kind of fear. Now this story is found in Luke chapter 2. And so if you brought your Bible today, and I hope that you did, I hope you always do, open them up and find Luke chapter 2. It's one of the Gospels, one of the four stories about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Now, only two of these books tell the story of Jesus' birth, Matthew and Luke, and Luke is the one that is most famous for the story of Jesus' birth. And so that's what we're going to look at today. If you've ever been in one of those plays about the birth of Jesus, it probably was taken right from the story of Luke chapter 2. Let me kind of set the picture of what's going on in culture and history at this point as we are ready to dive into this story. For a long period of time, God had been very silent. And so for these people, there was a real sense of fear and confusion when it came to God. They weren't very sure about what God was up to. They had been under the rule of Rome for 40 years, and it was very difficult for them. In fact, you might be able to relate to some of the issues they were dealing with. There was great political confusion during this time. There was a lot of financial instability. Their taxes were incredibly high. And if you would have interviewed a lot of the Jews in that day, they would have said they have little say over what the government does. Relate any of that? And into this period and into this moment in these people's lives of fear and confusion and stress and anxiety, God breaks His silence and He sends and offers to them the greatest invitation that has ever been offered any of us well here's how this familiar story goes luke chapter 2 verse 1 in those days caesar augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire roman world i don't know if caesar wakes up one morning and says how many people are actually in the roman empire let's count them probably not actually commentators tell us that this was a regular habit about once every 14 years that a census like this would be taken Verse 2 says, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. You had to go back to your place of birth for the purpose of this census. Verse 4, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Now, by road, that was probably about a 170-mile or 200-mile trip. Mary was awfully pregnant at this point. Can you imagine that conversation? Honey, we need to go to Bethlehem. It's the census. You know that whole deal. Now, I know it's difficult for you to travel right now, so I've thought about you. I want you to know I care about you. I've gone out and gotten you a donkey to ride. Isn't that nice? More though than they feared the trip and the difficulty of the trip, they feared Rome and the government. And maybe for Joseph and Mary, there was a whole other fear at work. Maybe more than they feared the trip, they feared what all the people in their little hometown had been saying about Mary and her pregnancy that happened out of wedlock. Whatever happened there on their way to Bethlehem. Verse 5, He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to Him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. They get all the way to Bethlehem and more good news, there's no place to stay. Mary is incredibly pregnant at this point, ready to give birth, and there is no lodging for them. They find a place out of the state, basically. And I'm sure at this point they thought to themselves, thank you very much, Rome, for making us make this stupid trip for your silly senses in this condition. Maybe there was a part of them that thought, thank you, God, for really providing for us when we got here. We're stuck out here giving birth to a baby in a stable. Well, what comes next? The scene that happens next is one of those scenes that we we probably have memorized. It, It is a spectacular scene. But what happens next in these verses is really the bottom line of the Christmas story. And it's inside of those next few lines that if we could ever really get a grip on them, they could change our hearts. Verse 8 says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. I don't know what that was like. Maybe because it was a habit for them. They were used to sitting out under the stars by a fire. And they just were telling stories. Maybe it was the same stories they told over and over again. Maybe they were laughing about the events of the day. Or maybe, maybe as they sat out under the stars, they just realized the immensity of the sky and the stars and just how small they really were. But if they were just doing their regular thing, listen to verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now they probably could have left that last part out and we'd still know, would Does it surprise you that they were terrified? Of course, they were terrified. They were doing what they did every single night. And in the quietness of that night, suddenly and spectacularly, the sky lights up in a way that they had never seen before. And suddenly, before them is an angel. Of course, they were terrified. In fact, Luke, when he writes this, he uses two forms of a Greek word. The Greek word that we get our words, phobia or fear And the way He uses them is a way to demonstrate just how much they were afraid. They literally mean big fear, or as it's been translated here, absolutely terrified. You see, for these shepherds, they thought this was God showing up. And if God was showing up, in their minds, it couldn't be good news. It had to be bad news. And maybe like us, in their minds, suddenly they had flashbacks of all of the things that they had done wrong in life. All of the mistakes they had made in this last week. All of the ways they had disappointed God. They're terrified. But listen to what the angel says in verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel says, you don't need to be afraid. I'm not bringing you bad news. I'm bringing you good news. And this is not just good news for you. This is good news for all people. This is not good news just for holy people. This is not good news just for righteous people. This is not good news just for consistent people. This is not good news just for Jewish people, this is not good news just for people who read their Bible. This is not good news just for people who were in church last Sunday. This is good news for all people. Implication? God is about to do something and it has nothing to do with what you have or have not done in your life. This is good news about something that God is about to do. Then listen to verse 11. Today in the town of David, a coach has been born. No, that's not what it says. Today in the city of David, a financial counselor has been born. No. Today in the city of David, a marriage counselor has been born. No. It says today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. God sent to us exactly what we needed the most. Savior. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. And as if one angel wasn't enough to terrify them, listen to verse 13, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared. Now the sky is full of these angelic beings. And these are not little cupids floating around on a cloud playing a harp. These are, these are maybe frightening at first appearance beings. Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven. The angel says they sing glory to God. In other words, this whole story is about what God is going to do. God gets all of the credit. The story begins with Him. He is the one who leverages everything in the story and the story ends with Him. This is not about what we can or can't do. This whole story is about what God can do. And God gets all the credit. And on earth, peace to those on whom His favor rests. God gets all of the credits, And what do I get? I get peace. You see, this is the message of Christianity. It's the message of Christmas. When you and I understand that God sent a Savior into the world, not based on what I deserve, not about what I have earned, God sent a Savior into the world. And when that settles into your heart, when you come to fully understand God sent to us a Savior, well, you know what happens? God gets all the credit. And I get peace. You see, if my perception of this story is more about what I have done, if my relationship with God or my understanding of who God is is about what I can do, if it's about what I have or have not done in life, then you know what? God doesn't get any credit. Because then God is simply giving me what I deserve. That's not good news. That's fair news. But in this story, God doesn't give me what I deserve. This is all about what God does, regardless of what I have or have not done in life. And do you catch that last phrase in verse 14? On whom His favor rests. Do you realize God's favor rests on you? To which maybe you immediately protest, oh, no, his favor doesn't rest on me. I mean, maybe I can fool other people into letting their favor rest on me, but not God. See, so you, you don't know what I've done, but God does. And maybe when you hear that his favor rests on you, the first thing you think is, wait a minute, you, you, there's this whole list of stuff that I've messed up in life. Maybe you think, you know, His favor doesn't rest on me. It might rest on her. She deserves some extra credit for putting up with me. But His favor doesn't rest on me. But according to the story and the message of Christmas, it does. Because His favor resting on you is not about whether or not you deserve it. It's not about what you have or have not done. His favor rests on you. In fact, if you literally translate it there, it says His pleasure is on you. His pleasure is you. When Jesus became an adult, He had a group of followers who were very close to Him and He deeply invested His life in this group of followers, sometimes called His disciples. One of those guys was John, and later in life, John wrote one of the books that tells the story of Jesus' life, one of the Gospels. But he also wrote three other little books that are found in the Bible, very creatively titled, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And in those creatively titled books, John shares some, things, some spiritual things that he's learned in his life about God. And among the things that he has learned, there is some insight for us about this whole story. He very simply says this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. He says, There is no fear in love. He says, In a relationship that is characterized by unconditional love, there is no fear. You see, but in our minds, our relationship with God is based on our performance. And because we think it's based on our performance, there is this unhealthy fear of God that we carry around. But John says that fear, that fear keeps us from having the kind of relationship with God that he intended. Because in perfect love, in unconditional love, there is no fear. Those two can't exist together. Then he says this, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. You see, here's what's true for all of us. When we think about God, there is something inside of every human being that acknowledges we have done some things that are wrong. And probably because that, we deserve some kind of punishment. But perfect love, God's love, was demonstrated in Jesus. And His perfect love came to drive out that fear of God that we often have. And the way that He did it was by allowing His Son to die on a cross to pay the penalty of our sin, to take our punishment. And Jesus' perfect love, His radical love, His take your sin upon me kind of love drives out that fear in our lives and makes it possible for us to have a relationship with Jesus that is not based on my performance, but it's based on what God has done. You see, that's the message of the Christmas story. That it's not about me. Don't fool yourself. It's not about you. It is all about what God has done through Jesus. See, the message of the Christmas story is very simple. Fear not. For my pleasure, my Pleasure is on you. Fear not. I have given you what you needed most. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And if you and I would ever fully grasp and would ever fully comprehend and take hold of the significance of that gift, if you and I would accept that invitation that God has given us, God will get all the glory. He'll get all the credit. And you and I will experience peace in our lives. God, thank You for Your invitation. Thank You for Your gift of Jesus that so transforms us. And God, over the course of these next few weeks, would You help us to understand in ways that we never have the simplicity and the beauty of this story. And God, would You use the truths of this story to drive that unhealthy Don't open the envelope, run the other way kind of fear out of our lives so that our relationship with You can be all that You intended to be. Thank You for Jesus and the fact that He is with us every day. In His name I pray, Amen.